Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4 is what we read from sacred scripture this evening. Back in my home congregation, we are considering the seven visions given to Zechariah. All these visions reveal something of Jesus Christ and his ministry to the church here on earth. What is recorded in chapter 4 is the fifth vision, so some context here. Fifth vision. I had the last time in my congregation preached the third vision in chapter 2. And the fourth vision, which is found in chapter 3, is where we have Christ revealed as the justifier of his ungodly people. So some context there for you. The sermon this evening is based on the entire chapter, but especially the verses 6 through 10. This is God's inspired word. Zechariah 4 verse 1. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which were upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who have despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the two olive golden Two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves. And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Thus far we read from God's holy inspired word. May he bless the reading of his word. Weakest means fulfills his will. And in particular, his will in relation to the greatest building project of all time, the church of God. Beloved congregation, the third vision of Zechariah had set forth the truth that Christ is the builder of Jerusalem, which is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. A truth there pictured by the prophecy and promise of God in Jesus Christ, rebuilding Jerusalem, its city at large as a whole, but especially its 
temple. In the third vision, it set forth the truth of the greatness of this building project and greatness in many aspects, in many ways. For one thing, the church is great because unlike any other building project, this building project of God continues unstoppably all through time. And the church, the product is lasting, everlasting. The greatness of that building project seen in Zechariah chapter 3 is also seen in other ways, other aspects. There's the greatness of the care taken to design it and build it so that at each point in time in history, the church is the exact size that it should be. And in the final time, we'll have the fullness of God's elect number. Then there is the greatness of the scope of this building project. A scope that includes every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Every tribe, every tongue and nation is included in this building project. There's also the greatness of its blessedness, the blessed protection that the church enjoys from her God and the blessed communion and fellowship that she enjoys with God. And most of all, in that third vision given to Zechariah, there is this greatness, the greatness that the fact, greatness of the fact that the Lord uses the most unworthy, lowest-grade raw materials in this building project. He uses the lowest-grade raw materials, but the result is a stunning, beautiful, glorious result. The infinitely glorious church of His in His Son, our Lord. Now, tonight, in this fifth vision, the Holy Spirit has more to add to that truth of the greatness of this building project. He continues to show us the greatness of this building project by the fact that Christ is pleased to use exactly those unworthy, unclean, low-grade raw materials. That's right. He's the very, the, you and I, as His very instruments, to build His church. Christ is pleased to use weakest means. Boys and girls, that includes you, all of us, you and I, whom He Himself is still working on at this time to fulfill His will and to build His church. How does he do that? In broad strokes, first of all, he cleans us up. He justifies us. He justifies his ungodly people. That's the fourth vision in the previous chapter of the book of Zechariah. He justifies his ungodly people, and then he, in this vision, equips, he equips his people with his Spirit, whom we are called to depend upon and not our own might and power to accomplish this task. What a privilege. What a privilege it is, therefore, for you and I to be included in this building project and to be builders in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a privilege as well as a much-needed encouragement. For you see, beloved, the task of temple or church building is a difficult task. We'll spend the first point of this sermon fleshing out that truth. Then second, we give heed to the all-important instruction arising from it that Christ has for all His temple builders throughout all ages. And then we conclude 
with the consideration of the reassuring promise for all who love the church and temple of God and who labor to build it. Consider with me then Christ's instruction for temple builders. Notice with me the difficult task, the all-important instruction, and the reassuring promise. The difficult task set forth in the text before us is the task of temple building. God's people in the time of Zechariah had been appointed to that task by the Lord Himself. And that task started to come their way from their point of view during the reign of wicked and ungodly King Cyrus, the ruler of the mighty Persian world empire. In 538 BC, the Lord turned the heart of this ungodly man to decree something in his eternal decree from all time that the exiles of Israel be allowed to return to their covenant homeland. That abruptly ended their 70 years, 70 long years of captivity. The captive elect remnant of God were astounded when they heard the news and, as, and overjoyed as well. With joy, this tiny remnant, just that, a tiny remnant of God's people made their way back to Jerusalem from Babylon, leaving behind the riches and the comforts of Babylon in exchange for the rubble and the ruin of Jerusalem. A major rebuilding project was before them as they set their eyes upon the scene, the land, their beloved homeland. They were to repair the broken walls of Jerusalem. They were to rebuild the city at large. And most of all, and especially, they were to rebuild the temple for that glorious structure that once stood there was completely raised to the ground. And so without delay, they proceeded to begin with the work. And with regard to the temple, they had laid the foundation of it in two years. But then the work came to a screeching halt thereafter for a number of years in the face of much opposition from their hostile neighbors, the Samaritans especially, so that if they were to continue the work, they would have to do it without a repaired wall to protect them. If they were to continue the work, they would have to do it without the presence of a strong military army to protect them. If they were to continue with the work, they would have to do it against the wishes of Artaxerxes, their powerful ruler, whom the Samaritans had convinced to oppose the work being done by the Jews. And, to be sure, beloved, even without all that external opposition that they faced, the task of rebuilding that was before them was a difficult task. I had mentioned a while ago the fact that there was nothing but devastation and destruction, rubble and ruins that they beheld when they first returned. It was a massive rebuilding project. And surely they were discouraged, most of all, by their own limitations. They were small in number. There was limited manpower to do the work. And they had limited resources to do the work for, of rebuilding, especially in regard to the temple. They did not have the measure of gold that Solomon had. They did not have the measure of silver 
that Solomon had, the fine wood and fine ornaments and choice materials that Solomon had to build that, that grand and glorious and majestic structure, they knew that right from the get-go. And there was absolutely no way to gather all those materials, choice materials, in their environment and in their setting. And so even before they had begun the work of laying the foundation, they knew in their heart of hearts that the building that they would, co they would construct, when completed, would be a pale, pale shadow of the splendor of Solomon's temple that once stood there. In a word, and in the language of verse 10 of our text, these temple builders were laboring in an environment and age known as the day of small things. Small. Small is the buzzword among these temple builders. Small is the fashionable word, the overwhelmingly dominating word that is in their mind and in their heart. Small, the day of small things, a small number of people to begin with, with a small amount of resources available. And when eventually completed, that, that temple, that structure would be a testament of the fact that they were laboring in a day of small, insignificant things. Small, small, small. And it isn't so different with us today, is it, beloved? Though there are some differences in details, the task of temple building or church building in our day and environment is a difficult task. If we ever needed a reminder, we can just read our bulletin and be reminded of the fact that we have a special day of prayer being proclaimed. Weighty. The issues that have befallen us as churches are weighty. So like them, we have our set of, own set of discouragements amid those difficulties. But let's ask the question, and let's, to be, let's be sure, what exactly, what exactly is our God-appointed task of temple building today? What is it? This. And I think you know the answer. The building up of this local church, this church which you belong to, and more broadly, the denomination of churches of which you are a part. That's the work. The task of temple building. And we realize too, don't we, that we like the Old Testament saints in Zerubbabel's time, laboring in that late and late age of the Old Testament, we being in the late days of the New Testament are also laboring in a day of small things. First church is small. Oh, I know you're re relatively bigger than KPRC in Kalamazoo, but you're small. And our denomination of churches is small, tiny, compared to the mainline denominations all around us. Even among the conservative Presbyterian and Reformed churches, we are small, tiny, puny. And unless the Lord wills differently, as we continue to maintain the unpopular truths 
and applications of Scripture we hold fast to, we very much are expecting to remain small. But that's all right. That's all right because the Lord does not despise the day of small things. The Lord does not despise smallness. What He despises and takes no pleasure in is unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness to Him, unfaithfulness to His Word, unfaithfulness to His ways. So now, what are we looking for in relation to church building? I'll be pointed here, just one word. Growth. Growth. That's what we're looking for, growth. And growth in two aspects, spiritual and numerical. Spiritual meaning, of course, sanctification, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Children, that's what your school is about. That's what catechism instruction is about, growing. And your parents are also growing. We don't stop growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. We grow. We are called to grow. Growing in our hearts and lives, growing in personal holiness, Growing to be more like Jesus. Spiritual growth. And then there's numerical growth. And here we know this refers to both internal numerical growth, growth from within the church, from the covenant homes and families, and external growth, growth from people who join us from the outside. It's growth. Well, what are some difficulties and discouragements that come with temple building in relation to growth? Let's start with numerical growth. Internally, there is, of course, you realize, no guarantee that our children will continue in our church and raise their family here when they grow, grow up. We pray that they will. We do our utmost. We teach our children, parents, don't we, to, to love this church, to pray for her, for her office bearers, to look for ways to serve in her as they grow up. We train them to our utmost, but... There's no guarantee? Certainly not. Statistically, I don't know what your statistics are, but many sons and daughters of many churches have continued on to raise their families elsewhere. This is not to speak ill against them. It's just a plain fact. There's discouragement there. Externally, You engage in the work of evangelism. You organize lectures. You organize special activities. But just how many walk in through those doors from outside? And how many, having walked in through those doors, stay and join as members? The same could be said with regard to our mission work in, denom in our denomination as well. The work of the Philippines is a small work after all these years, and we face the setback of a, a group, a big group of people leaving us not too long ago. And in domestic missions, small churches, that were once mission fields continue to be small, very small today. 
And in relation to spiritual growth, it seems to us sometimes that there really is very little growth, if any. Especially, we feel that the small beginning of the new obedience in Jesus Christ remains ever so small. When we see our all-too-familiar weaknesses manifest manifesting themselves, showing up time and again. These are great discouragements. The task of church building is a difficult work. Well, that being the case, how was the Rubabel in his day and how are we today going to succeed in our God-given Well, God Himself knows the great importance, even great need for the church to grow. The task of temple building is crucial to the believer. For you see, it's His appointed way for God's people to wait in hope for the Messiah to come. To come the first time in the Old Testament, and to come a second and final time in the new. It's His appointed way. For you see, what did Jesus say to us just before He was taken up in a cloud and ascended into heaven? What did He say? He said this, Ye shall be witnesses unto me. In Jerusalem, speaking to the Jews, in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth, witnesses to the ones who are closest to you, further away from you, even furthest away from you, ye shall be my Witnesses. In other words, build, build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so he gives then accordingly this all-important instruction for temple building to God's people then and through all ages also to us today in Zechariah chapter 4. What is that instruction? Verse 6, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit. Now that instruction of the Lord of hosts delivered through Zechariah, his prophet, was given to Zerubbabel in the context of a vision, which is the fifth vision recorded in the book of Zechariah. Let's take a long, hard look at this vision. Two parts to this vision. One part was well familiar to the prophet, and the second part was not familiar to him. Let's do the easy part first, the familiar part. The first thing seen in this familiar part was one of the, one of the three pieces of furniture in the holy place of the temple, that seven-branched candlestick. That seven-branched candlestick represented the people of God, the church of God in this world. And still more, we can say that that seven-branched candlestick together with the altar of incense and the table of showbread represented the church living in communion and fellowship with her God. Still more, we are told that this was a golden candlestick. The words, as you see in the text, are all gold. All gold. Golden candlestick. Gold there depicting the idea of preciousness. Great, great preciousness and value. 
God Himself then deems His church in the world to be precious. How dare then anyone despise the church of God in this world, even a small church in the day of small things? And then there were the lamps. The lamps on the candlesticks, giving off light. Light shining forth. And that shows that the church of God gives off the light of the gospel. The gospel of God in a dark and sinful world. Children, let your light so shine, says Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. That means that we are called to, the church is called to bear witness of the good news of Jesus Christ openly and unashamedly, bearing witness of the gospel by their lives, their godly lives and living. And as much as possible, when opportunity is given, to bear witness of the gospel by our mouths, to tell others just the difference the difference that Jesus makes in our hearts and lives. There's the lamps, golden candlestick, the lamps. But in order to operate and to keep on operating, that candlestick needed oil. Needed oil to give off light. The candlestick could not give off light in and of itself. It was useless without the oil. So also God's people, you and I are pretty much useless without the oil of the Holy Spirit. The oil signifies the Holy Spirit. That becomes clear to us when we consider the Old Testament, Old Testament ceremony of anointing, where one who would be ordained into office would be anointed with oil by the priest. That anointing with oil signifies the Holy Spirit qualifying, equipping that person for the work of the office. It's only by the Holy Spirit that every office bearer, including those who are in the office of believer, shine as bright lights in the dark world. We not only enjoy fellowship with God through the oil, but we obtain the energy that we need to, to be faithful temple builders from that oil. Engaging in prayer, teaching our children, serving in various ways, starting with the home children. I pray you parents are teaching your children to serve at home as much as possible so that it carries on to service in the church and denomination. Serving, giving witness about Jesus to others, and very importantly, growing. Growing spiritually and growing spiritually in the way of being busy, serving, doing, praying, reading, learning. That's the oil. Still more, there was a bowl above the light which carried a constant supply of oil in order for the candlestick to continue to give off its light. Notice, beloved, not an intermittent supply but a constant supply. For an intermittent supply of oil will result in the light flickering 
and going out for a period of time be dark, altogether dark for a period of time. But here we have a constant supply of oil so that the candlestick continues to burn and to shine brightly, continuously. So also, there is and must be a constant, conscious dependence on the oil of the Holy Spirit by God's people, by you and I, in order that our light shines brightly, shines without flickering, and shines steadily. So that was the part of the vision that was familiar to the prophet, the seven-branched golden candlestick, the, and with it the oil, the lamp, and the light. But the vision also featured something that was not familiar to Zechariah, and that was the two olive trees. And Zechariah shows that he's not familiar with this part of the vision by asking the question, what are these? And eventually the angel gives the answer in verse 14 to him what those two olive trees are. They are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth that are appointed to lead God's people in the task of temple building. They lead. They don't do all the work they can't. They lead. They represented both, in other words, in Zechariah's time, Joshua the high priest and as well Zerubbabel, the God-appointed governor of God's people. Both are God-given instruments called to lead God's people then in the task of temple building. That's the Old Testament, that's them. But our changeless God also in the New Testament is pleased to use olive trees still today. He's pleased to use His appointed leaders among His people to lead His people in the task of church building, His leaders who operate in the strength and power of that great servant of Jehovah, Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king. In this task of temple building, these are gifts to the church that the New Testament speaks of in various ways. There is in Ephesians chapter 4 the mention of the pastor-teacher who, who preaches and teaches God's Word to edify the church, to build her up, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's the importance of the word ministry of the church. It equips you to do God's work. And then, there are your elders and deacons who together with the pastor teacher fills the priestly and kingly officers of the church unto the spiritual well-being and care of the flock. Now, with these special gifts of God-ordained office bearers, the members of the New Testament church, that's you, the members of the New Testament church upon whom the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ was poured out unto at Pentecost, are equipped to join in with the task of church building, temple building, church building, building the body of Jesus Christ according to the measure of the gifts given to you and in the way of service. The important instruction for us who are called to, be, to serve and be active temple builders in Him is as we find it in verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, 
That means then, negatively, depend not and use not means and methods for the task of church building based on human strength and wisdom. Not for spiritual growth, nor for numerical growth. Depend not on the charisma of a preacher or a leader. Depend not on any leader for that matter. Give heed to his instruction according to God's word. Please do that. Give heed to his faithful and wise leadership he gives you. But do not depend on him. Still more, change not the message of the gospel, the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. The gospel is just fine. Don't tweak it. Don't adjust it. It's perfectly fine. Leave it alone. And replace not the preaching with drama or any other teaching aid which you conceive to be better than preaching. And beloved, let us not perform any of our labors dependent on our own strength and wisdom. Rather, depend on the Holy Spirit of the exalted Christ and use only the means and methods which He is pleased to use. What are those means and methods which He is pleased to use? The means, word, and prayer. And the method, based on and arising from the word and prayer, Service, thankful service. First, the word. Speak the word of truth in love. Speak the truth in love. That's how the church is built up. Speak it to one another. Speak the truth not to tear down. Speak the truth in love to build up. Don't be silent when there's a need to speak and it's on you to say something. Speak up, but speak it in love. And that means too that you are to receive the truth in love. I know that's hard sometimes, but that too is our implied calling. Receive the truth in love. That's how we grow together as a family of God. Speak and receive the word of truth in love. And then speak the word of truth in love to those outside the doors of this church. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about how excited you are about being a reformed believer, a member of this church. And that means, of course, that you, before you speak, that you know what you're speaking of, that you know God's Word, that you spend time, therefore, in His Word. Knowing and spending time in the Word, in our homes and family, spending time with our spouse, our children, in the Word, being attentive to the preaching to catechism instruction, to what your teachers teach you in the Christian school. You are blessed to have your Christian school. Coming to Bible study as often as you can. Being thinking and discerning Christians and then constantly applying the Word in our hearts and lives, not only through speech, but through action. In our homes, in our church family, and looking for opportunities to tell others about Jesus. 
That's the word. And then prayer. We all know what prayer is. You heard, you just had a sermon on the ABCs of prayer. Always necessary. Pray. Pray for your spiritual needs. Pray for your earthly needs. Pray for your needs personally, for your church family's needs. Pray for your denomination's needs. Pray. Be fervent in prayer. Be urgent in prayer. And pray without ceasing. Don't give up. Be persistent in prayer. Word and prayer. And from word and prayer, engaging in service and laboring. Active, thankful, joyful service and laboring in the church. In other words, be ye doers of the word and not just hearers. Use your gifts. Use them as much as possible. Service in the church means simply that we use the gifts that have been given us for one another's edification. This service by His Spirit and not our might is an essential aspect of the Christian life. It's an essential fruit as well of the Holy Spirit. It's all part, about, part of being truly thankful to God, so thankful to God for what He's done for us and continues to do in us. So, you who are thankful, be active. Be active in the Word. Be active in prayer. Be active in service. Abound in these things. Do these things in the strength of His Spirit, trusting in Him and in all His ways with all your heart and leaning not upon your own understanding, acknowledging Him in all your ways so that He directs your path in those ways. And therefore, finally, be not discouraged. Why not? He equips. He supplies. And he who equips and supplies is faithful. Faithful. Be not discouraged then by the seeming slowness of progress. Be not discouraged by the setbacks that we see and experience. The church is not a perfect church on earth. There's always work to do. She's a work in progress. And be not discouraged by the day of small things. This is God's work to be done in God's way. And God gives His fruits of those labors in His time. Not our schedule. His time. And He makes all things beautiful in his time. Our God well understands that we have a weak frame and feel easily discouraged. So along with this instruction, He gives reassuring promise to Zerubbabel and to us today. In Zerubbabel's day, He affirmed Zerubbabel's appointed place in the world through those two olive trees in this vision telling him that they signify both Joshua the high priest and him. God's telling Zerubbabel, that's you. That's you right there in my vision. That's you. And not only that, he also assures Zerubbabel in verse 7, the first half of it, that his opposition, symbolized by a great mountain, 
will be completely destroyed, will become a flattened plain. And in the same breath, he assures him in the second half of verse 7 that he who began the work of temple building will one day finish it. The top stone and the final stone of the temple will be laid. So also then for us today, God encourages us, fellow temple laborers with me. He reaffirms our continued calling and place in the work of temple building. Surely you see yourself in Zechariah's vision, don't you? If you're an office bearer, you're one of those olive trees. And if you're not an office bearer, you see yourself in that vision too, don't you? You're receiving the oil of the Holy Spirit. Certainly, you're being equipped by the Lord to do His work. And yes, there will come a day when all His and our enemies will become as a flattened plain. And as well, there will come a day when the very last elect child of God will be brought in to God's church and kingdom, gathered into His kingdom by word and spirit. So, beloved, in the meantime, build. Build. Let's work. Build and work knowing our appointed places, knowing the gifts that we've been given, and build and work in the strength of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, who is the master builder and craftsman of His church, and who gives to us His Spirit, the Spirit of the risen and exalted Lord. And do all His work, not by might, nor by power, but by His Spirit. And if at times you are overwhelmed by the amount of work that is before you in the day, the week, the month, take a step back away from all the work. And be amazed by this fact that He calls you and He calls me weakest means to fulfill his will. Doing so with humble hearts, let's build and let's work and know that He is with us and for us even unto the end of the world. Amen. Lord, bless this word and cause us to be encouraged by it so that we may take up our labors emboldened by thee, strengthened by thee, for the week ahead, yea, also for our life's calling and labors. Hear us, and hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.